Would you please remain standing as we read God's word? My name's Holly Webster, and I'm going to be reading today's sermon scripture. Our reading is going to be from John 20, 24 through 29. If you'd like to read along in the Blue Bibles on your pew, you can find the passage on page 529. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, in his hands, the marks of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into, into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, I, I thank you for your word. Thank you that as we go through this series, exploring things that can create such a darkness in our soul that we don't have to look outside of your word to have those things addressed. Rather, your word speaks directly to the real experience of our lives, including this experience of doubt. And so I pray that today as we explore doubt, what it is, what causes it, what it does to us and, and how to look to you in it, God, I just pray that your spirit would help us. I know the heaviness of doubt. I know the darkness and cloudiness that it creates in our spirit to walk with you. And I just pray that today your spirit would prompt those clouds of darkness to, to flee and to give us faith and to help us to trust you, God. And so, Father, would you, would you help us? Would you help us to, to understand a little bit more after today why we have such doubts that we do and to run to you for those and, and ask that you would clear those dark clouds away? So would you unite your power with my weak words and help us today, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, it is, uh, it is really good to be back with you. Uh, I was out of town last week. Uh, ben did a great job last week kicking off this short series where we are exploring just some common causes of what's called the dark night of the soul. And in these three weeks, we're exploring what can often cause uh, darkness and distance in our relationship with God and what to do. The, the idea of the dark night of the soul is a kind of an old phrase that describes a time in which life is hard and God seems incredibly far. And there's certain things that tend to cause that. And for today, we're looking at one cause that every Christian goes through at some point, but very few know how to actually navigate. And that's doubt. 
Last week, Ben looked at sin, and next week we'll look at suffering, but this week we have doubt to explore. And friends, just like I prayed, I feel such a heaviness in my gut on this topic. <laughs> like su such a heaviness preparing this week, partly due to the stories I know that are in this room that are walking through deep doubt right now, but also because of my own experience of doubt. My experience of doubt has at times been such a slog that has felt inescapable. In fact, one of my earliest memories, I don't remember much from my childhood, but I do remember this. When I was 13, I was walking through a great deal of doubt. So I've, I've shared this before, uh, but at age 13, I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. Um, and I've shared that openly and widely, but I've never actually shared what prompted that in my life. And I want to share a little bit of that. At age 13, I was confronted with the reality of death in a way that no 13-year-old should have to. Uh, in my eighth grade year of school, I watched death run through my school in a haunting and horrifying way. So that, that year alone, uh, two kids died in an accident. One teacher died in a motorcycle accident. Four fellow students took their own lives, and a random elderly man took his own life on school grounds. I was surrounded by death, and my little 13-year-old brain was traumatized. And, and specifically, the, the trauma that I had revolved around those students that I knew who had taken their own life. And I just began to ruminate on their lives and, and what pushed them to, to that point. And eventually the, the rumination turned inward and I began to ask what would push me to that point? If these kids, I, I knew them so well, what, what pushed them to that? And then eventually what would push me to such an end? And from there, OCD took hold and my life turned into a swirl of pain, fearful obsessions, and certainly doubt. Specifically, doubt came because of the questions that I was ruminating on. I saw death. I did not see God. I saw death all around me. I didn't see God anywhere. I felt fear. I did not feel God. And so I was crippled by doubt in the days when I needed faith the most. And in fact, I remember during this time, little 13-year-old me uh, at home alone, uh, it was a sunny day in Texas and I was outside in my driveway. And I remember this was one of those days that where it was like the thoughts were so strong that I couldn't, couldn't push them away. And I remember standing in the driveway on a very clear and sunny day in Texas and being like, okay, God, if you're real and if you care at all about me, I want you to send one raindrop just one raindrop in this sunny sky, and then I'll know that you're there. Then I'll know that you're listening to me. I wasn't even demanding relief from the, the thoughts, but I was demanding an assurance that I was not alone. God, if you do this, then I'll know. And friends, unsurprisingly, no raindrop came. And yet here I am today, still alive and actually filled with faith. I'm sure many of you can find some solidarity in that story. Your specific doubts may have been different, but they all tend to follow the same pattern. Crisis causes questions, which, which leads to demands of assurance. All of our doubts tend to follow that same pattern. And, and today I just wanna explore some of that pattern in our doubts and see what we can do when we feel this darkness. But I do wanna say at the beginning, 
I'm not here today to just fix your doubt. <laughs> I, I don't think I can do that, and I don't even know if I should do that if I could. <laughs> I'm actually of the mind that doubt is not just a common Christian experience, but maybe actually a critical one. At the foundation of most doubt is an honesty about the difficulty of a painful world, coupled with a desire to make sense of it for the sake of maturity. That's a good thing. I don't want to rescue you from that. I want to help you, but I can't save you from that. I mean, the scriptures themselves are filled with characters that embody doubt and the growth that it can actually bring. Abraham doubts God's promises, but he grows in faith. Moses doubts God's power, but steps into his calling anyway. Or even Jeremiah, the prophet. There's a section in Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is called to, to, to be a prophet to Israel and to call them to some really hard ways of repentance. And there's a moment in the book of Jeremiah where Jeremiah says to God, you deceived me. You tricked me. You brought me into this calling of ministry, this calling of being a prophet, making me think that it was actually gonna result in something and no one's listening. You deceived me. Jeremiah's doubt, doubting God's truthfulness and faithfulness, but friends, he ends up with a closeness to God that carries his ministry forward. Doubt fills the scriptures. And not to mention here, our friend, Doubting Thomas. So I'm not here to rescue you from doubt, but I do want to explore together and, and see if we can have some insight on how to, how to deal with this. So first, let's, let's explore some of what causes doubt. So let's, let's think about Thomas here. Thomas was one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And at this point in the Gospel of John, Thomas had, been, had spent the last three years walking with Jesus and learning from him. And during that three years, Thomas actually comes up as a figure of faith throughout the Gospels. So, so in the Gospels, only a few disciples actually have speaking roles, meaning they actually have words recorded of how they interacted with Jesus. And, and Thomas is one of those. So in John 11, after Jesus tells his disciples that, hey, Lazarus is dead, but we're gonna go to Bethany so that we can raise him from the dead, all of his other disciples push back and ask him not to go there because the Pharisees want to kill Jesus and they might actually succeed. Even, even though Jesus had just told them he's going to literally raise someone from the dead, all the rest of the disciples are afraid, but not Thomas. In John 11, right before they head out to Bethany together, in 11 verse 16, he says, Thomas says this, come, let us also go that we may die with him. That's loyalty. That is loyalty. He's so loyal to Jesus that even if there's a chance that Jesus will die, Thomas is ready to die right alongside him. Or, or later in, in John 14, Jesus is telling them that, that he's about to go away and Thomas asks him how his disciples can follow him wherever he's going. Now, Jesus in that text is speaking metaphorically of his impending crucifixion, but Thomas's sentiment in that text is a desire to be with Jesus. So what we have here is a disciple named Thomas who is very committed. He wants to stay near to Jesus, even if it means he dies alongside him. But then all of a sudden here in John 20, Thomas is doubting. And his doubt is prompted by what prompts our doubt as well. And that's pain. 
pain prompts doubt. This committed disciple is just days removed from watching the teacher he loves being beaten, stripped, and crucified. His whole world has been turned upside down. And because of that inward pain, doubt comes naturally. We we need to make something really clear when it comes to doubt. Doubt is not just an intellectual exercise that bypasses our hearts. In fact, I, I don't believe doubt is really ever that. Doubt does not come up in our brains in a way that's disconnected from our hearts. Rather, the the breeding ground for doubt is in our hearts, specifically when our hearts are rended by pain, like Thomas here. And the intellectual questions of doubt that come up in our brains are often an effort to actually answer the question of pain. I mean, if you think back to my example of doubt in the beginning, I wasn't doubting the existence of God because I had come across the cosmological argument for God and found it lacking. I was doubting the existence of God because of my pain, because of what I was walking through. And friends, the same is true for you. I mean, maybe, maybe you're walking through doubt as it concerns the church. The hypocrisy of the church has made you question the legitimacy of it all. But what that is at the core is a loss of trust. Trust has been lost through the shocking actions of others, and so doubt creeps in. Or maybe you are doubting the existence of God. You've not come across some argument that makes it seem like he's not real, but what you have come across is some unsolvable pain. Maybe relationships have broken down. Life has gotten heavier and heavier all while you seem to have no divine help or relief. Is God even real in that situation? That's pain prompting doubt. And even the pain that prompts our doubt can have all kinds of causes. So in in his book, After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It, A.J. Swoboda identifies three causes of pain that tend to prompt our doubt as well. He says, experience, crisis, and transition. Now, experience is what I just talked about. There's some experience of a dark valley that prompts doubt. Maybe the desire for marriage has been met with perpetual singleness. Or the prayer for healing has gone unanswered. It's an experience that causes pain, leading to questions of doubt. Crisis is what happens when something we didn't expect throws us off completely. I mean, this this is probably what we would say Thomas is in here as well. A crisis is an acute experience of pain or disillusionment that leads to a loss of trust, prompting the questions of doubt. And the tough thing is, is that crisis doesn't have to be personal to you. It doesn't have to be some crisis of an experience, but any time that there's something related to Christianity that takes you completely by surprise, that can be called a crisis. So for example, I'll give you one of mine that I had probably six or seven years ago, there's a, there's a German theologian from the 20th century named Karl Barth. And Karl Barth wrote a massive book called Church Dogmatics. Um, and that book has been deeply influential about how I think about God and theology. Karl Barth was genius. He had some weird things, but he was genius. Uh, and so he influenced me greatly. And, and then later, I found out that Karl Barth 
was actually a really lousy husband who most likely had an adulterous affair with his secretary that transcribed church dogmatics. So the very book that I love, that, I, that I've been so shaped by, the, the person who transcribed that for him was most likely someone he was having an affair with. That's a crisis. That's a, that's a loss of trust, which can lead to the question of doubt. And then finally, A.J. Swadoba says transition. Transition can cause pain, which leads to doubt. Often when we move somewhere, that begins to make us question where we came from. This is hugely prominent in Seattle. Seattle is full of transplants that moved from a more religiously conservative area, and it's also densely populated, which means we're coming into contact with more people who think differently. All of a sudden, there's a sense of pain or anger at what we were taught when we were young, and that leads us to doubt. Experience, crisis, transition, these things cause pain, which naturally leads to the nagging questions that make us doubt. That's where doubt starts. But what does doubt do? What does it actually do to us and in us? First, it creates relational distance. I mean, for our friend Thomas here, the relational distance comes out in his interactions with the other disciples. From what it looks like, He's the only one who wasn't there when the disciples saw Jesus alive just a few verses earlier. He's the only one who wasn't there. Talk about FOMO. Are you kidding me? Man, this dude missed out. And when the disciples share with him what had just happened, he just outright rejects it. Which if, if you can imagine, probably created a pretty awkward dynamic in that room. All the other disciples they just interacted with the once dead but now resurrected Jesus. And even in their interaction with him, earlier in the text, it says that Jesus breathed on them and gave them the Holy Spirit. These other disciples, talk about a boost in your faith. Seeing the once dead but now resurrected Jesus breathe and give you the Holy Spirit of God. A boost in your faith. But I imagine Thomas at the edges of the room not willing to participate in the conversations they're having. They're all chatting about what this could mean that Jesus would be brought, brought back from the dead. But Thomas isn't having any of it. It's a relational distance that his doubt creates. Now, relational distance is an understandable result of doubt, and that's because doubt, while often being a response to pain, is also a result of a loss of relational trust. We distance ourselves from those we doubt because doubt is at the core a settled distrust of that person. Doubt creates distance because doubt is the absence of trust that could bring us close. <laughs> and this, friends, is, is why doubt can be such a dark experience in our relationship with God. When doubt comes into our relationship with God, Here's what we do. We often distance ourselves from God because at the core of that doubt, we've ceased to trust who God is or what God says. And yet the reason we've lost trust and started to doubt is again because of some pain, which means that the times in which we need God most 
in our pain can also be the times that actually prompt distrust, causing us to distance ourselves from the one we actually need who can address that pain. That's a dark spiral. To be lost in pain, to feel a heaviness in your gut, to be going through something hard in life that's causing you to doubt the one who could actually give you some comfort. That's a dark, dark spiral. Through doubt, we distance ourselves from the one who is able to medicate and heal the pain that is causing our doubt. This is the dark night of the soul. God seems far because we can't connect with someone we can't trust. And yet it's at the same time when we need God to be most near because we are in some sort of pain. That's what doubt does. And second, as a reaction to this darkness and pain, we also tend to do what Thomas does here. We create reactionary demands. Thomas lays out exactly what he thinks it would take for him to believe that Jesus is risen from the dead. It's gotta be this. He won't accept anything less than touching the open wounds of crucifixion that Jesus suffered. That's what he demands. That way he'll know that it's really Jesus and not some fake or some fantasy, right? Now, Jesus later in the text, as we read, invites him to do just that, which is a really interesting scene because in that there's actually no suggestion that Thomas actually accepts Jesus's invitation to touch his wounds. When you read the text, it doesn't sound like Thomas actually did that. Instead, at the sight of Jesus, Thomas begins to believe and worship again. He doesn't even... Jesus answers his reactionary demands, invites him to have those things settled, and Thomas doesn't even do it. All he needed was the presence of Jesus there, which is a whole another sermon that we could talk about. These reactionary demands come from our pain. Do this, do that, and then I'll finally believe. If you could just do this, God, if I could just see this, if I could just have this, then I'll finally believe. And I mean, this is what I did in that driveway when I was 13, right? God, send a raindrop. <laughs> Such a 13-year-old thing to demand of God. <laughs> in the sunny sky, just send a raindrop. Then I'll know, then I'll know that you're actually there and that you actually care about me. These are reactionary demands that come up in response to the pain and the darkness of our doubt. You see, we, we can't endure the darkness and pain of our doubt for very long. Understandably, we, we want it to be over quickly. And so this is what we do. What we do in our minds is we set up reactionary ultimatums. If God does this, then I'll know that he's real. If God does this, then I'll know that he's trustworthy. And what we're doing is basically trying to determine for God the boundaries of the relationship. That if these demands are not met, then we'll go ahead and end the relationship and move on. We think we'd rather move on quickly because our demands weren't met than suffer what could be a very long stint in the darkness and pain of doubt. That's what we're doing. We're trying to solve our own pain by giving reactionary demands, saying, God, if you do this, then I'll know. But if you don't do this, then I'm just gonna walk away. 
I'm just going to end my own pain by ending the relationship, which, spoiler alert, friends, does not end the pain. <laughs> but I have, to, I have to tell you, friends, this reactionary demands, they almost never work. They just don't. Like I said, I didn't get a raindrop. <laughs> I mean, reactionary demands rarely work in human relationships, right? <laughs> And they don't often work in our relationship with God. I just have to warn you of that because our relationship with God and the rebuilding of trust in our hearts, friends, that often takes time. And the amount of time that it takes is something God is completely willing to wait on even if you are not. I just have to tell you that God is not here to just rescue you out of doubt which again is what those reactionary demands are for. God, if you'll just do this, then I'll be free from this doubt and I can move on from this pain. But, the, but God rarely works that way. Rarely works that way, simply solving what we think he needs to solve. Although he is a balm for our pain, he doesn't often respond to our demands to solve our pain the way we think it should be, or even when we think it should be. And this is because God is not just interested in solving our pain, but is interested in giving himself to us. God doesn't often answer our reactionary demands because he's not just trying to give us an answer, but he's trying to give us himself. And that's what the demands that we make are much more interested in the short-term solving of a problem than the long-term building of a trusting, settled relationship with God. God is interested in the relationship. We just want our pain to be gone. We just want our questions to be gone. And if we can have that, regardless of whether it results in a deeper relationship with God or not, that's what we really care about. But God, he's interested in the relationship. And sometimes that means not giving you the demands you think you need. And so our doubt comes from pain. It's not just an intellectual question that bypasses the heart, but these are questions in our brains that come up in an effort to address some pain in us. This, this doubt creates relational distance because we can't be close with someone we don't trust. And the demands that we make in order to try and solve our distance or pain are not usually God's prescribed remedy to the situation. That's doubt. So what are, what are we supposed to do? Well, at this point, friends, I've got to use the F word. It's the one that you don't want to hear when you're in doubt. Faith. Take a deep breath, y'all. It's like, well, this church is super Seattle. No. no one wants to hear that when they're walking through doubt. Faith. That's exactly what Jesus prescribes here to Thomas, though, Right? He says, believe, do not disbelieve. That's what Jesus commends. Now, now, before you scurry off in your mind and think that I'm just laying over some platitude of have faith in the midst of your painful doubt, let me just remind you of two things when it comes to faith. First, faith is inescapable. Regardless of whether you want me to tell you to have faith in your doubt, it doesn't really matter because faith is inescapable. Faith is necessary to walk through doubt, but also necessary to even begin doubting. I mean, remember, doubt is due to pain that leads to some level of distrust in God. 
But, but what could even prompt that distrust in God if there isn't something else that you're trusting in? The distrust in your relationship with God, the doubt that comes there is because there's some other idea that you're trusting more in. Faith is inescapable, regardless of whether you're in doubt or not. So, so for instance, maybe you're walking through doubt because you've experienced the pain of evil in our broken world. You, you've, 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 you're left shattered from some pain and that pain has led to a deep nagging doubt that God could ever be good, ever be trusted again. But I wanna point out that to get to that point of distrust in God, you've got to begin to trust things other than God. To doubt the goodness of God, you first have to trust your definition of what is actually good. You have to trust your supposed wisdom of how you would run your life if you were in control. You have to trust, you have the, you have to trust and have faith in your own conception of good and in your own supposed wisdom of how your life should go. All of that before you even begin to doubt God. You can't doubt God without faith in something else. Or, or maybe you're walking through doubt because you've seen such hypocrisy in the church and you're wondering whether any of this is real or not. Well, to get there, to doubt the Christian faith because of your experience in the church is to have faith in your own assessment of the church. Listen, your, your experience in the church is important and so much of the hypocrisy in Christians today is rank and grieves the heart of God. But friend, your experience is still very limited and in order to doubt the, legitimate, the legitimacy of the Christian faith because some other Christians are dummies, that's to trust your limited experience of what the church actually is. It has no context for what the church is outside of your experience, even outside of your culture. You have to trust your limited, limited experience to doubt the church, to doubt the Christian faith because of hypocrisy in the church requires that you trust your own limited experience as a reliable litmus test as to whether this whole thing is true or not. You see what I'm getting at? To doubt requires faith in something. Faith is inescapable. But let me also just remind you, or maybe even teach you what faith actually is. Faith is not an optimistic outlook on life with some spirituality attached to it. It's not, I heard one preacher say, it is not a holy hoping for the best. It's not an optimistic leap into nothingness, but faith as the Bible describes it is a settled conviction of assurance for things that have just not yet come. That, that faith is a slow settled sense that the promises of God are true. Faith does not look at the pain that causes our doubt and simply hope for the best. Biblical faith does not ignore the pain that, it, that prompts our questions. Faith doesn't erase pain or ignore it. What faith does is it takes our pain and chooses to stare at the promises of God in the midst of our pain. Faith is not an optimistic outlook on life with some kitschy spirituality attached to it. Faith is the act of refusing to make reactionary demands because demands are not necessary when promises are trusted. 
Here it is, friends. Faith is what happens when with a realistic assessment of our pain and darkness and distance, we still believe that the promises of God are more likely than the questions of doubt. We look at everything doubt is telling us, all the questions and all the suggested answers that it gives and compare that against the promises of God that are backed up by the character of God and then say, God is more trustworthy than all of this, all of what this doubt is telling me. That's what faith is. Doubt, doubt happens when we filter God's promises through anything but God's character. Faith happens when we filter God's promises through God's character. And again, there's examples of that all throughout scripture. I mean, think of, just pick one, Abraham, Abraham and Sarah. Doubt God's ability to bring them a child, a promised child, because they are old. <laughs> they doubt that. Well, why do they doubt that? Because they filter God's promise through their own situation. They filter God's promise through their own ability, through their own experience. And the story turns in Genesis whenever finally they begin to filter God's promise through God's character. <laughs> And that's what faith is. Faith is filtering God's promises through God's character and seeing that what comes out on the other side of that is far more trustworthy than the nagging questions of doubt and suggested conclusions of our doubt. Faith, it takes doubt seriously, never dismisses it. But faith also takes God's promises supported by God's character even more seriously. Again, it's not an optimistic outlook on life. It's not an optimistic leap into nothingness or a holy hoping for the best. Faith is strong and supported and fed by the promises of God. And all of those promises are structured, held up by the unshakable, unchangeable character of God. That's faith. That's what faith is. And I think friends, even the most cynical amongst us probably want that. At some level, we want this faith that takes God seriously. So how do we get it? To close, how do we get it or how do we grow it? Well, the kicker is that faith must be fed. It must be fed. C.S. Lewis points this out in his book, Mere Christianity. Listen to what he says. He says, one must train the habit of faith by making sure that some of its main doctrines shall be deliberately held before your mind for some time every day. He says, this is why daily prayers and religiously reading and church going are necessary parts of the Christian life. We have to be continually reminded of what we believe. Neither this belief nor any other will automatically remain alive in the mind. It must be fed. Faith is the least automatic thing in the world. Faith is not something that can be kept alive in the mind just by intention or even automation. Faith is not automatic. It is an, it's an organic thing that you have to feed you have to feed faith. It is kept alive and nourished in our hearts and minds through training and through time. So one way that, that we do this, that we feed this faith is actually by what you're doing right now. 
you show up. You show up to the practices of the Christian life. Faith is fed when we give ourselves to the practices that give us the best shot of having faith stay alive in our hearts and minds. Friends, we can't expect faith to stay alive when we're not feeding it. And so if you're walking through the darkness of doubt, the next best step is to just practice your faith. A faith that's never practiced will not stay alive. And so you give yourself to prayer. You read, you think, you meditate, you have times of silence, you show up to community, you place yourself in the right avenues that give the best chance of encountering God in such a way that will soothe doubt and bring faith. You can't expect to make it through doubt just by twiddling your thumbs, friends. I know that's hard, but you gotta practice your faith. You gotta embrace the inconvenience of it. You gotta embrace the inconvenience of it. This, this last week, I was reading a book that talked about another book. I love when books do that, when books talk about other books. That's a really good book. And they were talking about a book that talked about the consumerism of our culture and things like that. And the author of this other book pointed out that grocery stores, this is just an example of consumeristic culture, grocery stores are built to serve your convenience. And the way they do that is by placing all of the unhealthy stuff up front and in the middle. And all of the healthy stuff, the things that would inconvenience you on the sides and at the corners. <laughs> Everything that would be good for your body, they have placed in a, they have put in a spot that is inconvenient for you to get to. But if you wanna stay healthy, you better go there and do it or door dash it, let someone else get it. But you can't do that in the Christian faith. You can't door dash your faith. That's a quote right there. You've got to embrace the inconvenience of growth and of health. It's, the, the Christian faith is it's not an easy thing. We've got to embrace the inconvenience of these things, but it will feed our faith. But most of all, friends, to feed your faith, do everything you can to look to Jesus. That's the turning point in this story. Again, Thomas doesn't even, he doesn't even respond. He doesn't accept Jesus's invitation to have those demands met. He simply sees Jesus and his response is worship. My Lord and my God. All because he saw Jesus and that's what we need as well. We need to look to Jesus. Listen, the size of your faith it is directly correlated to the object of your faith. If the object of your faith grows, if you come into an understanding that matches the reality of Christ, your faith grows. Your faith instinctively strengthens in direct proportion to the expansion of the object of your faith. So in other words, look to Jesus. Study him, learn of him. Meet with him. Have your vision of Jesus expand to how great he really is and your faith will grow. Faith obeys and follows the size of the object of your faith. And so friends, look to Christ and his promises. 
When your understanding of Christ conforms to the reality of who he is, faith will grow. When Christ and his promises are seen, when our understanding of him grows to fit the reality of who he really is, faith will obediently follow. And I'll just tell you, friends, that's what, that's what got me through doubt eventually at that difficult time in my life. What got me through is seeing that the compelling nature and beauty of Jesus was almost so much more nagging than all of my doubts. Like I could have left the Christian faith if Jesus wasn't in it. And I would leave the Christian faith if Jesus wasn't in it. When we see his beauty and how compelling his character and his promises are, they just become this stickiness that keeps us in. And as we stare at him and see his glory, our faith will follow. So even just, just practically, what promise do you need? What promise do you need to hold on to? Do you know the promises of God? And if you do, what are the promises that you need to hold on to? And then look at that promise and ask yourself, how could God not be able to do this? Take that promise and filter it through his character and faith will grow. Let's pray. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us on Gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.